Last week was Easter, which is not news to anybody in the room. Easter is a day of triumph and celebration and joy. And today we're returning to our sermon series from Romans, and we're going to take a, sh a very sharp turn from celebration and joy to what's ordinary and routine and divisive and polarizing and unpopular. We're going to talk about government today. We're going to talk about God's plan for government, which is not exactly something that we all are excited about. I mean, just the concept of government in, in, in today's times is something that is almost difficult to talk about in any public forum because the opinions are, are so sharply divided in this country. Red state, blue state, polarization of left and right. Any blogger with a computer can sp spread the most outrageous rumors and untruths about any politician. And we have people like Keith, Keith Olbermann on the left and Rush Limbaugh on the right who stock and traders and make fun of people in, in positions of power. And, and it's no wonder then that when we look at opinion polls and, and approval ratings of political figures that they are astonishingly low. I saw two weeks ago that President Obama's approval rating, according to CBS Washington Post poll, was 41%, which is horrible. But it's four times higher than Congress's approval rating. Congress makes President Obama look good. I mean, it seems like nothing gets done in this country. Problems just exist and go on, and nothing ever seems to change. There's a great sense of frustration in this country, and I think we all feel it to some degree. Whatever our politics are, whatever we think about, whoever is in the White House today, yesterday, and tomorrow, there's a sense of frustration. I think, I think of the words of Howard Beale from the 1970s movie Network when he famously leaned out of the window and screamed in the night air, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. I think in, when we talk about politics, there's a sense that all of us can understand that. And then here comes Paul. One week after Easter, we're going to talk about government. And Paul, in Romans 13, 1-7, has said some very strong things about government, things that I think are important for us to hear. And so while it may not be as exciting as Easter and is certainly more academic, we, I, I do want to turn to today's text, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. The words will be on the screen. The words are also in your bulletins. Uh, let me open in prayer, and then we'll jump into the text and see what we can learn about Paul's view of government and the Christian's response to it. So let me open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your love, for your goodness, for your kindness. Last week, we were on the mountaintop on Easter Sunday when we celebrate the risen Lord. Today we return to what is more normal, to our everyday lives, and we talk about government, a subject that, again, can be so divisive. But I thank you, Father, for this teaching, too, that you are sovereign over all areas of our life, and I pray that you would help us today to see what you have to say about the role of government, that we, that we may learn from it, and that we may be good citizens of this nation and of the kingdom of God. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So, Romans 13, 1 to 7. Again, the words will be on the screen in just a moment. This is what Paul says, the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, we read words like that where Paul says, be subject to the king, that our rulers are the servants of God, that we are to, they are ministers of God, that we respect them and honor them. And we hear those words and we say, well, okay, Paul, but you don't really understand what it's like today, where, again, there's such polarization, there's such, such a sense of uneasiness about the direction of this country. And you say to us these kinds of things. Well, yes, he does say them. And we need to understand the situation Paul was addressing. I mean, think about it. He's writing, he's writing a letter to the church in Rome. Rome, the center of the evil empire of its day. One of the mightiest empires in the history of the world. And not an empire known for kindness and open-mindedness and fair play. And you know who the emperor was on the throne when Paul wrote this letter? It was Nero. Now, a few of us in this room are experts in Roman history, but everybody's heard of Nero. And if we, what we know about him is he was not exactly an enlightened, benevolent ruler. He was a cruel, barbaric man whose cruelties ring throughout history, even for those who aren't students of history. He was a man who murdered his mother by sending an assassin to club her to death in her bedroom. He executed his first wife on a trumped-up charge of adultery. He married his mistress and then in a fit of rage literally stomped her to death. He persecuted Christians by sending, sending them to the Colosseum to be devoured by lions. And he also used Christians as human torches to light his nighttime garden parties, which sometimes ascended in orgies. And this was not a kind man. This was not a good man. And yet Paul says what he says. Not even the most cynical among us would say that any recent leader of the United States has even begun to approach the love of cruelty and barbarity of a man like Nero, and yet Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. Be subject to the authorities of Rome. Now, why is that? How can he even say that? Well, I think we begin to see the answer in verse 1 when he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we see right away Paul's thesis, if you will, that those who rule have been placed in positions of authority by God, and the governments have been created by God for the good of the people under their authority. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time on that idea, but I want to leave that, mo- that point aside for just a moment and make a- another point. The rest of the verses really strike at why God has established the institution of government in the first place. We want to talk about that. Paul writes, The good ruler is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The primary role of government, biblically speaking, then, is to provide basic security for those who live under its authority so that we may live lives, quiet lives, of peace, prosperity, serving our families, serving our neighbors, serving our society, and serving the kingdom of God. The words of 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3 give us a hint, a further hint of the purpose of government. Timothy writes this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. 
Now, usually when we look at those verses, we focus on the, our, our need to pray for those in authority over us, and we will come back to that idea too. But I want to look instead at what he says at the end of that. We're to lead lives that are peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified in every way. And the basic services and protection provided by a well-run government enable us to do exactly that. When we have clean water, safe streets, roads that move us to and fro, and good schools. When we, have, when we can dial 911 and receive emergency assistance quickly. We understand what government can and should do. Think of what it would be like to live in a government that doesn't provide basic services like that. Think of what it would be like to live... In, a, in an area ruled by the thugs of Joseph Kony in Central Africa or by Mexican drug cartels or Somali warlords. And we get a sense that though we may not like government too much and we might find it intrusive, nonetheless we understand that it is a blessing, can be a blessing, should be a blessing in providing security and basic services for all of us. It's April 15th. It's income tax day. It's a bad day to preach a sermon about government. It's the one day of the year where nobody likes the government, even those who are going to get a refund. Nobody really likes government at all on this day, but I think each of us does understand that taxes are necessary and are the price we pay to live in a well-ordered society where we want to raise our families in peace and drink clean water and send our kids to good schools. That's what Paul's writing about when he says, for because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So it may be painful to pay taxes. It may be painful to write that check. Nonetheless, Paul commands us to do it. Now, I think to this point, most of us would nod our heads and say, okay, yeah, right, I get it. Certainly, we want basic services. Certainly, we want protection. We see a need for government. Nobody's really going to argue that. We want schools, police, fire protection, etc. Those are all good things. But, again, politics today is so polarizing, so divisive. And the stakes in every presidential election seem so high. How can we be good citizens of a government we may not even respect? I mean, the Republicans spent eight years in a snit over President Clinton, accusing him of every, moral, every form of moral depravity this side of Hugh Hefner in Las Vegas. And then, and then Democrats spent eight years in a snit over President Bush, accusing him of being a warmonger or torture and a man of stolen election. Now it's the Republicans' turn to be upset again. So we pass back our anger from party to party, and from faction to faction. Depending on our political leanings, we might think that government is too intrusive or not intrusive enough. We may think that it's gone way beyond God's purposes to provide basic protection and services, or we may think it hasn't begun to provide enough services for the poor and the helpless. And so for a lot of people, for a lot of Americans, in this polarized day and age, there is a genuine contempt for government, which, again, doesn't seem to be able to get much done. Well, what does Scripture say about that? Well, Scripture says we honor those in authority over us. Let's go back to where we began, Romans 13.1. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, those are striking words, aren't they? Those are words we can't really ignore. Authorities exist. Uh, those that exist have been instituted by God. There, there they are. Those in authority over us have been placed in their positions by God. Now, this raises a basic question. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God? Do we believe in the sovereignty of God? Then we need to see that the hand of God is at work not just in the lives of individuals, but also in the history of nations. Sometimes those who rule over us are just and wise. Sometimes they are not. 
were called to submit to their leadership. We see that, God, we see that idea often at work in the Old Testament. Think of, think of the trials and tribulations the nation of Israel went through under a series of unjust rulers. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles are filled with kings, kings who do not obey God, and yet their allegiance was commanded to obey them. Think about rulers like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, or Xerxes in the book of Esther. Think of the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, who made life miserable for the Israelites. Each of these rulers, each of these people, was an enemy of the nation of Israel and of the kingdom of God, and yet God used them to affect his purposes. One of my favorite Old Testament characters is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. I really genuinely like this guy, and I shouldn't, because in a lot of ways he was a monster. He was an egomaniac. He was a guy who could do whatever he wanted, and nobody could stop him. An absolute ruler who ruled absolutely. No limits on his power. I like him because he shows us what human nature is really like at its core, if power is unleashed. And God cared enough about Nebuchadnezzar that he sent a warning to him. He sent a warning to him and said, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't clean up your act, I'm going to literally drive you crazy. I'm going to drive you mad. And Nebuchadnezzar, egomaniac that he was, ignored him. He said, I don't need to listen to you. And the prophecy that God gave to him came true. Daniel 4.32, the voice of God comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time... That seven years shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There are the words. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Even a man like Nebuchadnezzar. Let me say it again. Those who rule over us have been placed by God to affect his purposes. The Most High gives power to those he chooses. Sometimes he sends benign rulers to bless his people. Sometimes he sends unjust, rule, unjust rulers to bring his people to task or to repentance. Abraham Lincoln understood that. I think one of the most remarkable speeches ever given in the history of this country was Lincoln's second inaugural delivered on March 4, 1865. Think about it. Lee would surrender to Grant at Appomattox in just over a month later. So the North stands on the brink of triumph after this terrible and bloody war, and Lincoln has persevered. The slaves are on the brink of being freed. The South is on the brink of collapse. And Lincoln stands up to give an inaugural address, and you would expect him to basically give a mission-accomplished speech, to talk about, look what we've done. Or maybe we'd expect him to talk about his Reconstruction policies, or maybe we'd expect him to talk about what was going to happen to the newly freed slaves. That's not what he did at all. He instead explained his view of why the Civil War was fought in the first place. And his answer is very strange to 21st century years. I cannot imagine a 21st century president saying what Lincoln said. Now, his language is somewhat archaic. The words are going to be on the screen in just a moment. So I'm going to read them. You'll see them. And then I want to translate them into more modern language. This is what Lincoln said. Yet if God wills that it, it being the war, continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's, that's slaves, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with, that, with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, what does that mean? What Lincoln is saying is, you know why this war came? It, became, it came because of the sin of slavery, because we as a nation have tolerated this sin. 
for 250 years, we have profited from the blood and the sweat of slaves. And if we have to pay with, it, with our blood and our sweat now for that sin, then the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln is saying that God is at work in human history. God is at work in the lives of nations. God is at work punishing this nation, our nation, for a terrible, terrible war. Now, we may not believe that. We may argue with that. But again, the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. God is at work in human history. So, when we're quick to complain about the government, quick to turn to the unkind word in describing our politicians of a cutting jest, we need to remember that God's hand is at work in ways we may not understand. He brings men and women to power for his purposes, not our own. And his purpose may be to bring us to repentance, to bring us to task, to lead us in ways that we don't expect. The expectation, whether we agree with the policies of this administration or that administration, is to be a good citizen, to honor those in authority over us. And if we don't like Paul's point of view, then what about Peter's? This is what Peter says in the same subject. He says, be subject the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now there it is again. And you know what? If you have Peter and Paul taking that position, Peter, Paul, Timothy taking that position, it's hard to argue, isn't it? And remember, again, Peter is commanding allegiance to a government that will in a few years literally destroy the city of Jerusalem and kill thousands of innocent women and children. Men, too. He's, he's, destroy, he's commanding allegiance to a government that is persecuting his fellow believers and a government that will, in just a few years, kill Peter and Paul themselves. So, we quoted Timothy earlier, but let's go back and revisit his words one more time. And now look at the other emphasis of his words. He said this, First of all, then, I urge, you, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing the sight of God our Savior. Again, Timothy's words are unambiguous. We're to pray for our leaders. So sorry, but if you're a Democrat and didn't pray for George W. Bush when he was in the White House, then that's on us. And similarly, if you're a Republican and you're not praying for Barack Obama, then again, that's on us. Government is an institution created by God provide a blanket of security for us, and we are expected to pray for those in authority over us. But wait a minute, wait a minute. That does raise a good question, and it's a legitimate question. Do we always have to obey? I mean, come on, do we really always have to obey? Do we always have to honor those in authority over us? I mean, what if we'd lived in Nazi Germany in the time of Adolf Hitler? What if we lived in Stalinist Russia? What if we lived in South Africa during the time of apartheid? What if we'd lived in Afghanistan during the rule of the Taliban? I mean, these were oppressive states who denied human beings of basic rights, who violated the laws of God in terms of the way in which they treated people, and in some cases, not all of those, but in some cases, suppressed Christians themselves. Should we have obeyed them? Should we have obeyed and honored those governments? Well, maybe not. Probably not. It's clear that many in the Bible did break the law when those in authority crossed certain lines. The Pharaoh commanded the people in the time of the Exodus to turn over their infant sons to be killed. And yet Moses' mother did not do that in direct violation of the law and thus saved his life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the book of Daniel were commanded to bow down 
to a golden idol erected by Nebuchadnezzar. But they didn't do it in direct violation of the law. Daniel was forbidden to pray to the Lord due to a foolish decree by the Persian king Darius, but he did so anyway in direct violation of the law. David, Elijah, Elisha all fled from cruel kings seeking to kill them instead of submitting to their authority in direct violation of the law. So we see plenty of times in the Old Testament where the pattern of civil disobedience is clear. There it is. These godly men did not follow the law. We see it in the New Testament, too. Dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling ruling council for, for proclaiming the name of Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem shortly after Pentecost, here's what happens in Acts chapter 5. And they had brought them, them the disciples. They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to wring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Now there's the principle. We must obey God rather than men. And that's helpful to a degree, but it's not entirely helpful, because what does that mean? I mean, really, where do we draw the line? I mean, think about it. When... Civil rights demonstrators marched from Selma to Montgomery in 1965, protesting voter discrimination in Alabama. That wasn't commanded in the Bible. When abortion protesters sat down in front of an abortion clinic in the 1980s, that wasn't commanded in the Bible. How do we decide when it's okay to break the law? When is it, when is it all right for us to say, we're going to obey God rather than men? Where are those lines? The Old Testament prophet Micah gives us a starting point, at least, to understand how we're to live as good citizens. This is what he said. Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. When the authorities that rule over us deny our rights and the rights of our fellow citizens live that way, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God, then perhaps it's a time to consider where our ultimate duty lies. That was the situation faced by Martin Luther King and the other civil rights leaders in the 50s and 60s who faced an oppressive system of segregation that denied basic human rights, basic human dignity to millions and millions of Americans. Perhaps the most notorious experience that King had in combating this evil occurred in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. The pictures we have in our minds, the mental images we have of fire hoses and attack dogs come from Birmingham. King was arrested for breaking the law, sent to jail. While he was there, a group of white clergymen in in Birmingham wrote a letter, or or actually took out a newspaper ad in the Birmingham newspaper condemning King for being a law violator and a disturber of social, social order. King wrote a very famous response called Letter from Birmingham Jail, which was published in the New York Times. And I want to read a little bit of it to you because I think King articulates a pretty comprehensive a very articulate and a very wise approach to the whole issue of civil disobedience. A minister of the gospel, of course, and a man who, who preached nonviolent resistance to evil. So, again, I want to read a few brief excerpts from a letter from Birmingham Jail. The first is where King explains why he came to Alabama in the first place. Why am I there? You say I shouldn't even be here. This is why I'm here. These are King's words. There can be no, no denial that racial injustice engulfs the community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. 
Its ugly record of police brutality is shown in every section of this country. Its unjust treatment of Negroes in the courts is a notorious reality. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than any city in this nation. These are the hard, brutal, and unbelievable facts. So that's why he's there. Now he's going to explain his rationale for violating the law. The ministers say, you're a Christian. You shouldn't violate the law. Well, here's what King says in response to that. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break the law. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in public schools, it is rather strange to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact there are two types of laws, just laws and unjust laws. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, there's a rationale for violating the law. There are just and unjust laws. But how do you decide which is which? This is the crux of the argument. This is really what we read everything to get to this point. So the, word, these, the next words are going to be on the screen. What's the difference between the two, King says? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Law should be rooted in eternal truth, in the law of God. It should uplift human personality, not degrade. That's King's standard. And I think that's consistent with what Micah is saying. I think that's consistent with what drove Moses' mother and the, and the disciples and Daniel and so on to violate the law. Is there a time to break the law? Yes, there is. It's clear the Scripture says we can do it at certain times. When the government violates the higher laws of God by stripping its citizens of basic human rights to life and dignity, then civil disobedience may be our only recourse. It may be right. It may be just. It may be true obedience to God. But to do so, we must recognize one thing. Like Dr. King, like Daniel in the Old Testament, the disciples in the New, we must be prepared to go to jail. We must prepare to pay the penalty of the law if we're going to break the law, as these men did. Now, we need to make one more point. So far, we've said government's instituted by God, that we should submit to our ruling authorities, pray for our ruling authorities, but sometimes it's okay to break the law. There's one more important point to make. And and I think it's arguably, I think inarguably, actually, the most important point of all. If you're really going to understand what Paul is after in Romans 13, 1 to 7, I think we need to back up a bit to Romans 12. I want to look at the last few chapters, excuse me, last few verses in Romans 12 and look at what he's saying there. Because I think there's a theme that emerges, which you'll see, that I think is really central to this whole discussion of government. So I'm going to back up about 10 verses. I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to sort of pick out highlights. Romans 12, this is, again, leading up to, the, to today's text. Here's what Paul writes. Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not overcome, not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Then he goes immediately into today's text, his discussion of government. Then the verse that immediately follows it, Romans 13, 8, is this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he skips a couple verses and says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. Now, there's a pattern here, isn't there? There's a repetitive theme that we see again and again. And it's all centered on the central Christian responsibility, and that is to love. Chapter 12, he talks about love. Verse 8, he talks about love. So one of two things is true about Romans 13, 1-7. Either Paul is a remarkably bad writer who understands nothing of the logical flow of, development, of the development of an idea, or Paul is developing a theme, and he sees his conversation and discussion about love as consistent with what has come before and what will come after. I think what he's saying is this. The entire gospel operates on the principle of love. We often divorce the public arena from that consideration, but Paul doesn't do that. He knows that we're all flawed, we're all broken. And so, our prayerful response in all human relationships, both individual and collective, is to be forbearing, to be forgiving, to be quick to recognize our own flaws, and to love other people. Our day-to-day lives, we know that we will encounter those who are aggravated, frustrated, disappointed, and enraged. And yet we're expected to love them. And doesn't that same principle apply to those in positions of authority over us? Is there a divide in the Christian life between our public response and our private response? Governments are made up of flawed men and women, sinful people who make bad decisions in their personal and political lives just like we do in our personal and professional lives. Rarely are those decisions, the bad decisions they make, made maliciously. Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, both George Bushes believe they're making choices that would make this life in this nation better for all of us, and President Obama is doing exactly the same thing. We may, not, we may not like some of these men. We may not have voted for some of these men. We may not support their policies. But I think it's fair to say that whatever mistakes President Bush made were not done because he was a civil, liber- civil liberties-hating fascist who hated America, which his critics claim is true. And in the same way, whatever mistakes President Obama makes or will make are reflections of errors in judgment, not malice toward America. We're to pray for our leaders. We're to honor our leaders, respect our leaders. The name-calling, the wild accusation, the sheer hatred that's so much a part of our political discourse today is frankly unchristian and unbiblical. It's sinful. Paul says, honor the men and women in authority over us. And that's difficult for us to do. It's very difficult for us to do. But we can't forget that love must be at the heart of everything we do. The great commandment that God gives us is to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves, even if our neighbor is a politician or a political figure whom we don't support. Love is to be the supreme virtue. And though we have every right to protest our government's actions, vote to oust a candidate from office, give money to support this candidate as opposed to that candidate, we are nonetheless, according to what Paul says, respect those in authority over us to love those in authority over us. We're not just to be good citizens of this country, but great citizens, so that America can be a place of justice and truth and compassion, the city on the hill, the pilgrims long that it would be, and we all hope it will be as well. But we don't do that very well. I remember very clearly the day that I found out about 
President Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. It was, I was at work. It was in the morning. I walked in the teacher's lounge where I work. One of my colleagues walked up to me and said, did you hear what happened? Do you know what's going on? I said, no. He said, and he told me the bare outline of what was known at that point about this uh, relationship between President Clinton and, and Monica Lewinsky. And I, all I can say is that as he told me this, he was delighting in the news. He was really excited by what had happened. And he said, we've got him, we've got him, he's done, he's a goner. He's, he's over, his presidency is over. And this man, a man I really like, I really respect, was just almost literally cackling with glee in response to the news of this affair. And I, I have to say, as I stood there listening to him, I was kind of embarrassed. I was genuinely embarrassed because what my friend was saying was that I'm really excited that this country is going to be dragged through the muck and mire of this scandal for the next however months it's going to take to unfold. I'm really excited that President Clinton and the president himself is going to be degraded and disgraced. I'm really excited that Mrs. Clinton and Chelsea Clinton are going to be humiliated publicly for months to come. I'm really excited that Monica Lewinsky will now become a punchline to the, the, the jokes of late-night comedians will never, ever again be able to walk into any room in this country for the rest of their life without people nudging their neighbors and saying, oh, there she is, look, look who's there. I mean, really, is that something to be excited about? It's okay to not like the policies of this president or that president, to not want them to be in office. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the political game. But is, if Christians are called to love... And if President Clinton is this man's enemies, then it seems to me that this response is taking this a step too far. Delighting a president's public disgrace really isn't a love, particularly loving response. My colleague's reaction seemed to lose sight of the higher calling place in all of us, a higher calling we all fail, fail to live up to, and that is to love other people. If Paul can pray for Nero, if he can command allegiance to Nero, then maybe, just maybe, we can treat those who we disagree with us with at least respect if not love. When we turn politics into an ugly game of gotcha, we've lost sight of yet another and final biblical principle. Souls are more important than elections. People matter more than politics. And the Christians to take the long-term view of reality and not get hung up on the day-to-day political game. After all, to quote Paul yet again, he said, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're citizens of heaven. That means our greater loyalty must be to God and into the kingdom of God, not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, not even the United States of America. Our loyalty can go to any of those bodies, of course. And we all want to be good citizens of this country. Of course we do. We all love this country. We want it to be a great country. But the kingdom of God is a bare priority. So we should vote. We should donate money. We should campaign for people we believe in. We should write to officials expressing our point of view, even if our position, even if our point of view is critical of their position. But always, always, we need to understand that politics will pass, but the kingdom of God lives forever. We're to submit to the ruling authorities, but to submit to God even more. And the kingdom of God is built around the fundamental principle, always, always to love. We can't divorce our private lives from our public lives. We can't live with a false dichotomy. We may not like that. We may not like a man or woman serving an authority over us. But as Paul says, love is to rule the day. Let's close in prayer.
Father, these are hard words. We don't really like to talk about politics in public places very often just because it's so divisive. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be good citizens of this country. You have given us a great country. And it is a privilege and an honor to live in a place where we can vote, where we can be citizens and participate in the political process. And I thank you for the men and women who do so. It is an often thankless and heavily criticized job. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the humility to treat them with respect and honor and to, when we disagree, to treat those we disagree with with courtesy and kindness and love. I don't do it well, Lord. It's hard for me to do it. It's hard for all of us to do it. And yet, may your Holy Spirit intrude even into this part of our life, which we often don't even think, we don't even think about as a Christian. Help us to be your people even here. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.